One of the things that the Greeks were good at was giving us philosophy. I mean, that's not the only thing they gave us, but one of the things that we remember them for is their philosophy. One philosopher in particular, I'm going somewhere with this. This song just prompted this thought, so don't worry, I'm not going to go off on a rabbit trail. Uh, one philosopher in particular, Heraclitus was his name, he, his basic premise in philosophy was you never step into the same stream twice, that even if you step into the same stream, your foot will be different, it will have different air, it will stir up different particles. And he was getting at this philosophy of constant change, that there is a philosophy in our world of constant change, that when we look at the things around us, what are some things that we can be absolutely sure of? Change will happen. Things will change. Circumstances change. In fact, when we think of the river stepping into a river, it's such a, a poignant picture because within a river, you have moving water and you have shifting sands, and to step into a river can be dangerous. You can break an ankle. You can get swept off because of the constant change of water and, and sand underneath your feet. And so if that's true, if that philosophical viewpoint tends to be true, and it does, when you think about life, think about how much change you deal with all the time. When we have a message that says, amid all the change, there is this one thing that remains constant, and it is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ founded on his resurrection and that keeps us in the midst of change, right? In the midst of hard change even. Let's, let's even say hard change. Death and, and disease and, and persecution and, and life that just unfolds in the midst of change. What, what do we hope in? What becomes that thing, that plumb line that helps draw us back to that place where we can be reminded that we are firm? Well, Scripture tells us that it's Jesus. Scripture tells us that it's rooted in the resurrection. And so when we think about days like today, well, we're not just here to have a nice celebration, here to just honor the church calendar or here to wear brighter clothes or have beautiful flowers and, and a reason to say nice remarks. No, we're here to be reminded that when we walk out those doors, we are being hit in the face with all kinds of change. What will we do? Where will we, where will we go in that type of onslaught? Well, we can either bend with it and try to bend with it and constantly get lost in the shuffle of culture, or we can stand here in the power of Christ, we can stand, and we can make our, our confession, our profession known to the world by saying, yes, things change, circumstances change, hardships come and hardships go, but this remains constant, and this is where I stand. And as Martin Luther said, I can do no other, so help me. This morning, as if for those of you who normally meet with us know we've been going through the book of Daniel, we're going to take a break from that this morning and look at, to me, one of the more uh, important scriptures with regard to the resurrection. So if you have your Bible with you, please open them up to 1 Corinthians 15. That is where we will be studying this morning. This wonderful chapter, the whole chapter itself is about the resurrection and how it ripples out and how it affects believers and what it's meant to do. We normally, this is not our custom to just drop into a paragraph, but we're doing this today in honor of the topic today as we are all thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. It seems fitting that we should focus on that this morning. When we look at 1 Corinthians 15, of course, it's towards the end of the book. It's the, the next to the last chapter. But Paul is kind of laying out, he's giving us what would be a full theology, a full discourse on what it means 
to be resurrected and what it means that Christ was raised from the dead and how the implications of that are meant to affect us. It gives us a full kind of overview of what it means for us practically because it's easy. Sometimes we let these things stay in the theological realm. They just stay up here as ideology. These things, you know, well, of course I, I believe that. Yes, I, I think that's true. But what does that mean for you on Wednesday morning? What does it mean for you on Thursday afternoon? What does it mean for you when life is hard or life is easy, when family struggles are pressing or when all is well? Because if these things just stay in the philosophical realm, they're relatively meaningless. There's not meaningless, and it doesn't need to stay in the philosophical realm. Even things like resurrection, these things have practical value for how I live my life. If I want to live in victory, let's give one example. Perhaps you have a sin pattern that you struggle with. Perhaps it's pressing. And perhaps there are times and days where you feel totally helpless against this particular sin pattern. What do you do? Do you just give in and say, oh, well, this is just how I am? Or do you find the strength through God's word rooted in the power of resurrection that says Jesus has defeated this sin? Whatever that sin pattern is for you right now and for me, he's defeated it. When he came walking out of that tomb, he sealed it. Now, does that mean you'll never struggle again? Well, no. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean, beloved, that you have victory. And so how is the resurrection practical for you on a Tuesday? Because maybe that Tuesday afternoon you're tempted to delve into that sin pattern. And maybe you remember that Jesus died, Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the dead. So Satan or my flesh, I can say no right now because Jesus is alive. So yes, practical value, practical value for how we live our lives. Paul wanted us to see that. But these first 11 verses, which is what we're looking at this morning, is just giving us the foundation. How, where is all that built? Where, where, how do we press in or, or tap into what I've just said, the ability to say no to sin, the world, and Satan and our flesh? It begins with understanding that Jesus rose on our behalf. And so this morning, without further delay, I want us to turn our attention to the Scriptures. We will be examining this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Let's read it now together. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me now. Father, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for the many places in Scripture where you lay out things so carefully, so precisely, so that we can have help on Tuesday, help on Friday, help on Saturday. 
so that we remember that these things are not just ideologies, they're not just philosophies, they're practical, they have value, they're meant to be applied. And so this morning as we think through your resurrection, we celebrate that and we thank you that it, it wasn't just a nice idea, but it, it ripples into the present day that if those who call on you, we can stand firm in you because you have called us, you have saved us, and you rose on our behalf that we too might rise with you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. We think about life in general. Uh, I would just say that life is beautiful and life is powerful. When we think about the power of life, there, there's so many different places. I'm not really, between Rachel and me, that's my wife, I'm not really the nature person that she is. She really sees God in nature because she appreciates the creation. But you cannot help but say if you're walking through the mountains and you find this plant in a crag and it almost has no business being there. Like how in the world did this thing figure out in a rock to dig roots deep enough to get water and sustenance that it needs to grow? Now maybe that doesn't amaze you, but it's kind of amazing to me when I see that in the middle, like in a place it shouldn't be there. It just shouldn't be there. It's beautiful. It's, it's mystifying to me. How does that happen? Well, life is powerful. Of course, we cannot think of life and not think about life that grows in the womb. And, you, you know, when we think about a life in a womb, it's not just a clump of cells. It's not just a ball of tissue. It is a life created by God. Beautiful. And it's wonderful to behold. It's wonderful to see it form. It's wonderful to see how the Lord does that. Or when we think about the body, the beauty of the body that has life coursing through it, the body's capacity to fight off disease, to fight off virus even, but to, to live, to constantly be pressing itself toward life. All these things, they are reflections of the Creator. God is life. Jesus is life. And so when we think about life, what ties those pictures together? It's that the power of life is at work in all those things. See, in our world, and you can see this in literature, you can see this in film, you can see this in history, what do we often, what do human beings often associate power with? The power to kill, the power to destroy, the power to take life. Well, that's not the ultimate power. It is a serious thing to take a life, no doubt about it. That's not where power is. There's the real power that we see in our world is the power of life to happen, the power of life to be created, the power of life that overcomes death in so many situations. And so when we think of life and we think of its power, of course, what is the beauty of the resurrection? Death is a power. Death is a power that was brought into the world because of sin, and what does Jesus do? Jesus could kill people in judgment, sure. But if you really want to show yourself powerful, defeat the only thing that no human being could ever defeat, which is death, which is exactly what we just read about in the resurrection. So we see that when we see what life is, when it actually has the capacity to conquer death. And so we see God's power at work in miracles. There's no doubt about it. Turning water into wine or multiplying food or, or doing all the different things, calming a storm or, or, or making sickness go away, all the things Jesus did, they're beautiful and they, they herald God's power. Nothing heralds God's power like calling Lazarus out of that tomb or Jesus himself walking out of a tomb three days later. That is the, that is the pinnacle of God's power, the ability to reverse this unconquerable power in death and bring out of it life. That's what makes salvation such an important thing. 
Well, the church of antiquity, this the, our early church fathers, we quoted the Apostles' Creed this morning, the church of antiquity, they attached a lot of importance to the resurrection, and rightfully so. Uh, for that was the rallying cry for the church. Why? Well, because that validated all that Jesus taught and said. It was the validating moment for all that Jesus had said while he was on the earth. In fact, it was such a meaningful day. The day of resurrection was such a meaningful day that these Christians that had been fostered out of Judaism to be followers of Christ, they decided that the day of worship should be on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and they said, we are going to pattern our worship now after the resurrection. We're going to take the day that Jesus rose up, and that's the day we're going to worship. You can see references to that in Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 16, the next chapter over, or Revelation 1, where they reference being together on the Lord's day. So the resurrection was vital and is vital because it was through the lens of the resurrection that our early church fathers viewed everything. And there's a simple reason for this. There's a simple reason that they attach so much significance to this because without the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel message falls apart because what it means is, is that life has not been conquered or death has not been conquered by life, that life was not able to conquer that last enemy, death. But you see, life has conquered. The resurrection did happen. Paul lays this out like a good researcher. He's gonna, and we're going to get into this here in just a minute. But it's interesting to me that Paul has this whole letter to the Corinthian church. We know that there is a second letter that follows this, and we also know from history there's actually a third letter that is not in Scripture. But Paul spent the first 14 chapters talking about the different things, marriage and spiritual gifts and all the other stuff that is comprised in this book. It is interesting to me that Paul saved this vital issue of the letter until the very last, until almost the last chapter. But why? I don't know, and no one can really say, other than this is how the Holy Spirit inspired it. But I don't want us to think that it's because it wasn't valuable, that it, because it wasn't, you know, of, of first importance, which he says, uh, I deliver to you as of first importance. See, I mean, he tells you that it's very important. So where it falls in this book is not really all that significant. But what this chapter does do is it clarifies the resurrection as the linchpin of the gospel. Like the gospel, it rises and falls on the power of resurrection, and we need to keep that straight. This is not just a minor thing. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. No, 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 it's not like that. It's Jesus rose from the dead, and if you call him Lord this morning, your hope and your trust is in him, then everything depends on that. Because Paul will say later on in this chapter, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are most to be pitied. But he did, you see. For Jesus to conquer death in his people, his power of life must win. And we see this in the resurrection. And so when we think about life, life is not merely a power that Jesus possesses. No. Jesus is life. Jesus is the power of life itself. And he will say this more than once in John's gospel, but today, one the one that's most pertinent to where we are now, I am the resurrection and the life. That's Jesus' statement to Mary and Martha just before he raised their brother from the dead. He didn't say, I will give resurrection and life. 
He didn't say, I will cause you to understand and see resurrection and life. He says, I am those things. I embody that. That is who I am in my person, in my being. If you want to experience that, you must come to me. In fact, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, making it part of his identity that he is life. And so as we think about that this morning, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that the resurrection is the hope and foundation of the gospel. That the resurrection is the hope and foundation of the gospel. When Paul is laying these things out here, he's getting into kind of why is this important now? Well, for one of the things that you and I have to deal with in our world is we have to deal with a pervasive sense of hopelessness. We are constantly smacked with hopelessness, despair, death, you know, deception, so many things that, you know, and, and depression and, and anxiety and, and all these different things that come at us so we can live in a world that would quickly suck away our hope if we let it. And then sometimes if you're honest with yourself, we do let it. Sometimes we do let it send us on a pathway of despair. What is the thing that Scripture is constantly trying to bring us back around to? Hope. That idea that when I'm being battered, that when I'm being crushed, that when I'm being pressed in, pressed down, when it feels like I'm being destroyed, what is the one thing that buoys me and helps me to rise above it? Well, it's not that I'm powerful and strong and I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's the hope of Christ. It's that one thing that reminds us, A, I'm not alone, B, I am saved, C, I have been raised with Christ, and D, he is coming back for me. So I don't have to give in to the hope in this world. So when Paul is laying out this, he's trying to give us a, a living hope. And when we think about salvation, that's one pillar. And we think about sanctification, that is God making us more and more holy, that is another pillar. Where do these two things rest? Where do, what, 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 where do they flow through? They rest on and flow through the resurrection. Jesus is coming out of the grave. It, it sealed our salvation in him if we trust Jesus coming out of a gray, out of the, of the tomb, sealed our ability to grow and be made holy more and more in him and through him by means of this resurrection. And so when we look at this, Paul says here, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now we'll stop right there. What does Paul do? He starts out, he starts out with this word, gospel. In the Greek, the word is euangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism from it. It is a prolific word in Pauline letters. In fact, if we wanted to be technical, we would never say it like this, but he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I gospeled to you. The word there preached is also a derivative of that word gospel. It's for proclamation. So what is Paul saying? He's putting that right out on the front end. When we think about the resurrection of Christ, we've got to think about this in terms of the gospel. Now, I'm going to elaborate on the gospel here in just a few moments, but for the time being, let's just call the gospel the good news of hope and salvation for the lost and broken. That's what Paul is how he's using it here in this context. We'll elaborate on that here in just a minute. But what does he say? He says, I would, like, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's making known to them, he's asking them, by this word they're reminded, he's asking them to recollect. 
I'm trying to remind you, I've preached this message to you, but it's so important, I want to rehash it again so that you can understand just how valuable this is for your life. He's, he wants them to, to remember what they've previously known. Now, when he talks about this, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and by which you stand. We're going to get into this in just a minute, but what is this what is he doing? The resurrection is that constant reminder that there is life and hope, that when we do get pressed down, that when we do get shaken up, that when we do get battered and beaten, that there is hope beyond that circumstance. There's hope beyond that moment. Now, is it fun to be in the hard circumstances that we're in? Well, no. Does this, is this a guarantee that we're only going to have to walk in those just a little while? No. Beloved of God, I, I hate to say it, sometimes those circumstances will be years. What will you do? Where will you go? Will you despair? Will you give in? Will you let the culture shape the gospel right out of you? Or will each day of pain and hardship, will we come back to the cross? The cross is there for us to come back to again and again and again because on that cross, Jesus died. He satisfied the wrath of God. He went into a tomb and he walked out of it. That's not going to make all the pain go away, but that gives you hope when you are at your most painful. So please cling to it. The good news was faithfully proclaimed to the Corinthian church. That's what Paul's point is. What does that remind us of? The gospel is meant to be shared. Those of you who worship with us regularly have heard me say before the old quote from one of the church fathers, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Well, of course, it's necessary to use words. The gospel is meant to be preached. Paul had preached the gospel to them. He's not preaching it for the first time, but here's what it tells you. He's preaching it again. He's preached it before. He's preached it again. He'll probably preach it again because it's meant to be shared, and it's meant to be that thing that we need the refresher. We need to constantly come back to Scripture for that refresher. But look at the, the three things he says about them, about the gospel I preach. He says, you received it, you're standing in it, and it's the thing that is saving you. So by, ta- by speaking of received there, I, the idea of accepted, you've believed its fundamental truths. You haven't just interacted with this academically. You've taken it in. You're trusting in it. You've received this message that you're trusting that is, that is foundational to your life. How do we know that that's true? Well, because the next phrase, you stand in it or you have stood in it. And so what does it mean to stand in the gospel? To take its truths and then apply them to our lives, that we live them out. And so then it becomes the, the thing that informs what I do, how I treat people, what I say, what, what, what is of first importance to me. And so when we live our lives a certain way, it becomes evident that the gospel is that fundamental message, that foundational truth that is pressing and shaping us. And then he gets to what I think is super important and by which you are being saved. By the gospel, dear ones, by the gospel, by which you are being saved. The only hope of salvation is the gospel truth. The only way that we are genuinely delivered from sin, from death, is the gospel. There's no other way. There are not many roads to Jesus. There are not many roads to the mountaintop. Not all religions are the same, and not all religions are equally true. I will say this, because it it bears repeating. There is one way, one truth, one hope, one life, one love, and his name is Jesus, period. That is life. That is the power of life over death. That is the hope in the face of despair. 
that is the good news in a world filled with bad news. But he does say this. Look at what Paul says. He says, if you hold fast, that is, keep to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What does it mean to keep it? Does he mean literally to stash it away? Well, no. He means to believe. We've already kind of made this point. He means to follow. And how do we know that our life is not vain? It's not twisting in the wind. It's not given over to vanity and life under the sun. When we've imbibed, we've drunk in the gospel, and it's pressing us and moving us and causing us to live differently. Because here's the thing. The message of the cross is true, right, real, and beautiful. But when those are dissuaded from that message of the cross, when one is dissuaded from the message of the cross, he has embraced vanity. Ecclesiastes is all about life under the sun, life apart from the Lord, that it's caused life without the Lord vain. The vain is empty, meaningless, no substance to it. Paul says if you are not being saved, if you're not if you're not standing in it, if you're not keeping the word, you have believed in vain. Your belief is empty. Beloved, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. Some people came afterwards and tried to justify Christianity. They called carnal Christianity a Christianity with the absence of the lordship of Christ. It is a lie. That is a lie. Christians can be carnal. Christians can be given to carnality. That doesn't make it okay, and that doesn't mean that they should stay there. Christians are Lord-worshiping Christians, and our lives should be built on the principles of gospel truth so that when we do go the way of carnality, we repent and we move back to the center, which is Christ. I love that Paul in verse 3 calls it literally first things, for I delivered to you as first things what I also received. And then he begins to make his case that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I want to stop right there. What is the death of Christ? Well, he's going to lay out that it is our life, that Christ died that we might have life, that Christ died for our sins, that is the death of that Christ died, we deserved. Christ died the death that we deserved, that we might have a life that we could never deserve, that we could never merit. Christ did for us the very things that we could never do, which is give us life. We could not choose life on our own. How do we know that? Brad, where are you pulling that from? I'm pulling it from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church when he says, you were dead and your trespasses and sins. And dead in sins. And so what does Christ do? Christ comes along and says, you could never atone for that mountain of debt that you have. So here's what I'm going to do. Because of God's preordained plan that he set in motion that is in Scripture. We're going to look at this in just a second. I'm going to take that debt off you and I'm going to put it on myself because I can bear it. And I'm going to die the death that you deserve. And the life I'm going to give you is a life you could never merit. It's true life. It's real life. It's now the power of life coursing through you that you might stand, that you might be salt, that you might be light, that you might live. It's this beautiful thing. Paul, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I'm going to come back to that in accordance with the Scriptures here in just a moment. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I'm going to stop right there. Why does he say buried? 
Well, interestingly enough, in the early church, there were some heresies that were floating around, and I won't get into all of them, but some of them said, well, Jesus didn't really die. Right before he was supposed to die on the cross since he was God, the Spirit of God left the body and went back up to heaven because he could not die that ignominious way. Well, there was another heresy that said, well, Jesus didn't really, and and he wasn't really incarnated. It just had the appearance of the incarnation because God could never take on all the mess that Jesus took on himself for the sin of his people. Well, when Paul is telling us that he was buried, he's trying to deal with this reality that he really died. It wasn't fake. It wasn't just, it wasn't, uh, you know, kind of an illusion that Jesus really died. And how do we know? Because he really stuck him in a tomb. He was really buried. They took his lifeless body from the cross and they placed it in a tomb. Why? Why is that important? Because there's a cost that has to be paid for sin. And Jesus really paid it. That's Paul's point. If we're going to have the life that we have in Christ this morning, then that, that debt had to be paid. And so why is Paul taking pains to do this, to make sure they understand the debt was paid? Jesus paid the debt. He really was buried. But then Paul says that he rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's crucified on Friday, goes to the tomb. He's entombed all day Saturday, and on Sunday morning he rises from the dead. Why? Why is that so important? That life, his life, and his death, well, what they do is they validate something. They validate this message that he preached for three years to his disciples, to anybody who would listen. By walking out of that tomb, the resurrection was validated. Jesus' life was validated. The gospel is validated. It's a very familiar scripture, but why does Paul say according to the scriptures? He's rooting this not in just his own recollection. And he's not even rooting this in the New Testament authors, though we could, we could probably go back to some New Testament passages that kind of would undergird what Paul is saying. But think of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He was bruised for our transgressions. He suffered for our iniquities. And by the stripes, the markings, the beatings that were upon him, we were healed. Isaiah is telling us 700 years before it happens exactly what the suffering servant's going to do. He's going to come, he's going to live, he's going to die. But he's not going to die for himself, he's going to die for his people. Psalm 22, again, a beautiful messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David. Jesus quotes it from the cross. When we start thinking about the Scripture and we start thinking about the Bible's view of how Jesus would come and what it would look like and what he would accomplish, Psalm 22 gives us almost identical description of the cross. And so when Paul is talking about the Scriptures being fulfilled in Jesus coming and dying and, and the Scriptures being fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection, he doesn't just have in mind what the apostles had got together and put together. He's thinking as far back as the Old Testament. Beloved, I've said this, but it bears repeating. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no gospel. And if Jesus doesn't conquer death, we have no hope. But there is a gospel. We do have hope exactly because Jesus has conquered death. I want you to also understand that Paul's point in writing this is to let us know it would be easy to just say, well, this is such an obscure event. This is an obscure event. You know, yeah, of course, the followers of Jesus are saying this, but who else can verify it? Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. 
And so in verses 5 to 8, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. I want to stop right there. So this resurrection is not an obscure event. It was quite widely witnessed. Why does Paul proliferate witnesses right there? For one reason, authenticity. I didn't make this up. This is not a fairy story. This is not a false tale. In fact, by mentioning all these people, he mentions of the 500, he says some of them have fallen asleep, that is, died, but most of them are living. Why does he make these notes? Why is he telling the people in this letter, go and ask them, go verify for yourself that the 12 saw it? Why does he, why does he differentiate between 12 and apostles? Let, let's deal with that one first. The 12 was the kind of the official name for his followers, for, you know, the disciples that he took on at first. And so what Paul is saying there is that he appeared to them. We know that. Who are the apostles, though? Because we tend to think of the apostles as the 12. Well, this is where we have to differentiate between big A apostle and little a apostle. The, the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. It means to send or to be sent. And so Jesus sent out people, even while during his ministry, he sent out the 72. He sent out other people to proclaim his message. But Paul mentioning a band of apostles, those probably recognized as those who have been sent either by Jesus or by the 12 themselves to go out and preach the gospel. What is the number of them? I'm not sure. It could be 72. It could be 100. We don't know. What is the point? The point is, it wasn't just seen by Peter, who is Cephas. It wasn't just seen by the twelve. Now it's seen by this band of apostles who have been charged and commissioned to go out and preach the message of Jesus. Well, that's not all that saw it. The 500, who they were, what their names were, we have no idea. Paul gives us that clarifying point. Go ask any one of them, though. Just be mindful. Some of them have died. You can't ask them all. But many are still living. This idea that it's verifiable, that it's authentic, that people could still seek out testimony for themselves. Beloved, if you know much about literature in the first century, it's very different than our literature today. They would not write a fiction when people living could verify the truth of it like this, not something this grand. And so Paul is saying, if you have doubts, go and ask. But i uh, the way that he speaks of himself here is very telling. Last of all, oh, let me just make this comment here. Then he appeared to James. The James there is not one of the 12. That would be his, the Lord's brother. So the James in this context almost certainly is the James who is Jesus' brother whom he appeared to because we know that that's who wrote the book of James and then, of course, the Lord's brother who wrote the book of Jude. So we, we see the ripple effect of the resurrection. Now, Paul speaks of himself, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's, before that, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's interesting there is this word untimely. It's, it's not a common word that Paul uses. Why does he use this here? Well, for the time of this day, that word would implicate a miscarriage. If a woman were to have a miscarriage, that would be the word that they use. Or a premature birth. Or even if she didn't have a miscarriage, she had a premature birth, this would be the word that they use. This is the word that Paul chooses here. So 
last of all, as to one prematurely born, he appeared also to me. What is Paul getting at? Well, in thinking of the 12, and think of the ministry that Jesus had to the 12, the three years of living with and under the teaching of Jesus, Paul says, I didn't have that. I had a very unique conversion and call. Remember, he was on his way to deliver death sentences to the church when Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, no, you're not going to deliver death sentences to the church. You're mine now. Uh, In fact, you're mine. I'm calling you. I'm saving you. And I'm going to send you out to the people that your group of Pharisees has despised for centuries. Isn't it unique? Or isn't it so ironic, rather, that Paul, the Pharisee, the Jesus-hating Pharisee, the Gentile-hating Pharisee, would be one of the most zealous men for Jesus ever and the man to the Gentiles? God has a sense of humor. God takes this man and says, I'm going to take everything you hate, I'm going to renew your heart, and you're going to love it. And you're going to die for that love. Beloved, that's what the resurrection is meant to do for us. To knock us off our horse. To reorient our way of thinking. To renew our minds and hearts. And so that maybe the things that we once despised are the things that we now embrace. The things that we once thought beneath us are the things that now herald the glory of God. Paul is prematurely born. He says, I had a very unusual conversion and calling. He's thrust into ministry without the time with Jesus that the others. What does this do? What does this do for us? It gets to the heart of what the resurrection is. Paul says, I persecuted the church. I I wasn't worthy. I wasn't worthy. Don't you love that word but right there? And what follows it is so crucial. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I love that verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What is Paul's point? That his ministry magnifies the grace of God. He is the least, he's not worthy. Because of his previous persecutions, we have that down. What is, what, what is we doing here? What is, what is Paul doing? There's a humble honesty here. I know who I was. I know what I did. I don't think more highly of myself than I ought, Paul says to us. But what is the larger application to this? What could we, what, how, how do we agree with Paul here? Yeah, Paul, you're right. What is the broader application? No one is worthy of it. No one is worthy of it. If you're sitting here this morning and you call Jesus Lord, it's not because you were worthy of it. It's because God loved you. And by his grace, he saved you. He called you. He nurtured you. And when you stumble, it is his grace that picks you back up to restore you. It is the grace of God at work. Paul highlights this. that No one is, is worthy. What does help us? What is the thing that we need? It is the righteousness of Christ. And none of us will earn it. That is freely given to us in Jesus. When we look at Paul's life, can we find a better example of a life that is the fruit of resurrection and grace applied? A man who who killed, who stood by and approved of stonings, who persecuted the very people he would come to love and die with and for. When we look at Paul's life, we think, how does the resurrection make a difference? How can it make a difference for you or for me? It can radically reshape how we view our lives, how we view the lives of others, and the absolute necessity of the gospel going forward. 
I love, I love this. He says, the way the ESV translates this, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Literally, prepositions are spatial. Y'all have heard me say this before we've been here. It's, when you have a preposition, it's usually so you can capture moving from one place to another. What it says there, literally, and his grace into me was not in vain. Paul is picturing a time where he stood here and the grace of God was here. And God's primary great work was to take that grace and to put it into Paul and weave it into his very person. So that now Paul doesn't just love grace, it's the grace of God in him, in his being. It is part of who he is. And if you're in Christ this morning, the grace of God has moved into you. And you have that power at work within you. You have the strength of Christ at work in you. He closes this off by saying, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. You know what the overarching message is right there? It doesn't matter who proclaims it so long as the gospel goes out and people believe. Whether then it was I or they, doesn't matter. What, is, what matters is that the real, good, true, beautiful message was preached and that people genuinely believed. When we think about this brief paragraph, we can come to one conclusion that it's only through the resurrection of Christ that we can be raised up to new life. There is no richer message than the gospel. Now, what is that? You've heard me say that word a lot. I want to take just a brief moment to define it, in case you're not sure. I'm going to sum it up. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, said, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, that is Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. When we start talking about the gospel, it is that message that we don't have everything we need in ourselves, that death reigns because of sin. But in Jesus, we can have life, and we can have it abundantly. And that Jesus doesn't just give us his life, he gives us his righteousness. So that now, the righteousness we needed and the life we needed have been given to us in Christ. That is the message of the gospel. And it ripples out for us. But for this to take place... Jesus had to defeat sin by dying on the cross, and Jesus had to defeat death by rising from the dead. And Jesus accomplished everything necessary for the gospel to be effectual. And so we don't celebrate this day every year simply because Jesus rose from the dead, although we do, and that's important. We celebrate this day because Jesus rose from the dead and he brought his people with him, which is why... The Lord's Supper is such a beautiful picture of us being united with Christ in his death and united with Christ in his life. So why are we here to celebrate this morning? Plain and simple, because of the resurrection. Why, do we, why will we celebrate tomorrow and the next day and the next day unless Jesus comes back or we die? Because the resurrection is true. So this morning, take heart. If you're in Christ this morning, you have a wonderful truth, a beautiful truth to lean on. If you're not in Christ this morning, I urge you to come, to come. Come and know Christ. Come and be known by Christ. Come and have your heart changed by Christ. I'm not promising you an easier life, but I'm promising you a better one. Christ has risen. Father, thank you for this word, its power, its beauty, its truth.
Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for loving your people with an infinite love, a love that has no bounds, that has, cannot be traced. It is eternal. A love that has no weakness, that it is completely effectual, that it will save as far as the curse is found. Thank you for that love. I pray that our hearts be stirred afresh this morning, renewed, that your mercy would meet us, that your grace would sustain us, and that we would celebrate the resurrection for years to come until you come back and we celebrate it with you in your presence. Through Christ we pray. Amen.